right. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them with me and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want to read to you a prayer by a man named Sir Francis Drake. How many remember Sir Francis Drake in your history books? He was a a sailor and so all of what he's going to say is going to be um, have uh, ocean views if that makes sense. Disturb us, Lord, we are too well pleased with ourselves. Wow. When our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little. When we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess. We have lost our thirst for the waters of life having fallen in love with life itself. We have ceased to dream of eternity and in our efforts to build a new earth. We have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push us into into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. This we ask in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. Disturb us, O Lord. We have become too Americanized. Would be a really concise statement in that prayer. This morning I am going to be using an outline from Dr. Erwin Lutzer. How many remember Dr. How many have ever heard of Dr. Erwin Lutzer? Dr. Erwin Lutzer was the pastor of Moody for like I think 40 years, I think. A long time. And he is like 81 this year and uh, he will be at the conference You know, some of you should just take off work and go to a conference. I mean, we take off work and we go do other stuff. How about taking off work and spending three days listening to the Word of God from giants of the faith? Tell you what, the only reason I don't want you to go there is then you're going to start looking for a different pastor. But we are preaching a message that he preached for this reason. I don't normally do this, obviously. But we heard last week a message from Stephen Davey somewhat. You just can't preach somebody else's sermon. How many understand that? It's just, the outline's there, but you know, there's a lot of differences. But Pastor Davey's done a fantastic job of how we are to respond 
to the evil that's in the world? How are we to react? And he used the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. And it's interesting that we have just gone through Romans chapter 12. How many see the very, I mean, almost word for word in some aspects between Matthew 5 and Luke 6, the Sermon on the Mount, and Romans chapter 12? I mean, it's almost word for word in some ways. And that wasn't even brought up in the whole sermon because I had listened to it. I bet you I've listened to that sermon about 40 times because I didn't want to misquote him. I didn't want to miss, I, I didn't want to affect him at all in what he said. And I wanted to be true to that. Last week we dealt with that the church at large has become baptized, has baptized the American Bill of Rights into church doctrine. In other words, we love the Constitution, but the Constitution does not hold a candle to the Word of God. Nor should it ever be equal to the Word of God, because it's not. It's not. We can love it, we can enjoy the freedoms, but we have to be careful that we don't say, praise God that He gave us this Constitution to stand on for biblical purposes. That's just ridiculous. I praise the Lord we have the Constitution. But we are an anomaly in this world. And we're not the only Christians in this world. Amen. This is something different and weird. But I'm just going to go quickly ahead. These were the eight or four things, right? Right to love, eventually eight. Love others that disagree. Serve those that hate you. Gracious to those that curse you. Pray for those that hurt you. Right to refuse to take revenge. Right to be defrauded of possessions. Right to not get back what others have taken. Right to not see your wishes come true. All those things were found in the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, we're going to be preaching with that passage in mind. What Erwin Lutzer then talked about the very next night, I believe it was the very next night. I loved this quote, is it not true? Our mission is not to save America. Our mission is, save, is to save Americans. I think that really just puts it all in perspective. Christians are called to God's Bill of Rights found in Scripture. This morning we're going to talk about Christians are called to Bow the knee to God. Because he takes a different view here. Not that he's in, in, in struggling with against Davy. It's not that he's um, trying to preach and, and fix Davy's theology. What he's trying to say is, here's the issue. This is what Christians can do. And both are saying, amen, amen. This is what we're called to do. Sermon on the Mount, Romans 12. But... But, Christians are also called to bow the knee to God and not bow the knee to anything else if it goes against the Word of God. This is a sermon from Erwin Lutzer on October 21st, September, uh, October of 2021. How do we respond biblically to a 
collapsing culture. How do we do that? Romans 12 and Sermon on the Mount tell us that. We went through that last week. Boy, what did I do here? I got this all wrong. <laughs> In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to be preaching on while... Let me ask you this. Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a culture upside down in Babylon? How did they respond? How did Daniel respond? How did Esther and Mordecai respond? How did Peter respond? And we're going to find in the text that there is a time where we do not bow if the government is telling us to do what is unbiblical. We do not. So how many can understand that these two men came at it from different ways? They both agreed totally, but from two different sides of the argument. Before we preach Daniel chapter 3, I want to give you an illustration of this sermon. The sermon is called, We Will Not Bow. The illustration comes from a book called The Gulag. How many have ever read The Gulag? There's three volumes. <clears throat> it is an experiment in literary investigation into how Russia dealt with people during, um, in 1937. So that's between the world wars, if you will. The Gulag was written by a name by a man named Alexander, and I'm going to get this word. I heard it so many times, but I cannot pronounce it. Solonitsin. I smoked it. Alexander Solonitsin. He was there. He investigated. And this is what he wrote. Stalin and his labor camps. In 1937, Stalin gave a speech at one of his labor camps. As soon as he was done speaking, all the people, what did they think they did? All the people started clapping. The clapping kept going for six minutes, seven minutes it was going on. People were standing, clapping at what Stalin had said. They were in struggling. They didn't want to stop, or they did want to stop, but they couldn't stop. It felt as if they were collapsing. Some people said, now, now we're going to collapse. Some were collapsing saying their goose was cooked. Remember that phrase, their goose was cooked. Ten minutes went by. People were dragging. People were trying to hide behind each other, trying to keep their frowns and dissatisfaction of what was just said to themselves. Eleven minutes of non-stop non clapping and a local, local paper maker and his family had had enough and stopped clapping and sat down. The crowd, overjoyed, also stopped clapping and sat down. Later that night, Stalin's henchmen showed up at the door of the papermaker and proceeded to arrest him 
they sentenced him to 10 years in prison. They told him some made-up charge, but in the interrogation, they sternly told him, don't ever be the first to stop clapping. The author then asks in a very pointed question, this is Solonitsyn says, how does freedom die? He answers, in humble ashamedness by thunderous applause. The Russians perfected what they called collective demonization. This demonization's goal was to try to mark the dissenter. No matter who it is and no matter how few they are, if there's just one and even if you don't know him, we need to take care of him need to mark the dissenter within the group and tell everyone else to step up and clap with us. And nobody wants to be seen as non-clapping. And get the masses to turn their back on, demonize, and what might be understood as canceling someone or group they disagree with. Sounds eerily familiar with the current cancel culture, does it not? It is true. If Christians will live biblically, this current culture that we are now experiencing here in America will put a target on our backs and with that brings the idea that Christians need to be canceled. Why? The church cannot clap at the current state of egalitarianism and sexual identity choices. Amen. The church cannot clap to redefining the sanctity of holy marriage between a man and a woman. The church cannot clap for a government not doing its job of judging evil and instead encouraging evil and defunding those that are trying to curb it. The church cannot clap for abortion by all means and reasons. The church cannot clap at any of those things that the Bible calls evil. We must never disobey God, and sometimes we must follow the command in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. The Bible has historical events that certainly and directly deal with these various issues. The Bible does not say the church cannot clap but instead it says, we will not bow, is what it says. Unfortunately, that is not what the churches did in Germany. Erwin Lutzer, and I don't know his entire story, but I know he can fluently, he, he, he speaks German fluently. He's from, born and raised in Canada, but he has spent much time in Germany, and he even wrote a book on Nazi Germany. And in his research, Lucer speaks, uh, in his research, he found that many of the churches hung swastikas in front of their church on their doors and in front of their church buildings inside. What they were saying was, when you come for the Christians, don't come for us because we are on your side. We are 
clapping. Pretty powerful stuff. Dr. Lutzer then spent, I think he said, a week and was listening to Americans. And he gives three stories of Americans that I'll read to you right now. Baronel Sitzman. She owned a flower shop in the state of Washington. She made arrangements for any and all. She had worked for Rob Ingersoll for 10 years and had a good relationship with him as a customer. She did everything he wanted for 10 years until he asked her to make an arrangement for a same-sex wedding. And she refused, for that was a bridge too far. She immediately was sued by the ACLU and for the attorneys of state. And the state courts all ruled against her. During one of those hearings, matter of fact, probably the last hearing, Berenal walked over to Rob Ingersoll and hugged him. After she had lost again. She followed scripture as we were taught last week, did she not? Her attorneys looked at her and said, you know, it's not, no one goes up and hugs the person that's trying to destroy you. Christians do. In March of 2021, she took her case to the Supreme Court. And as of yet, she has not had her matter looked at. They refuse to look at it. So, she has everything to lose and no time to start over. She's 76 years old. This one hit home to me, big time, the School of the Ozarks. How many have ever heard of the School of the Ozarks? The School of the Ozarks is when Pillsbury shut down, some of the Pillsbury students went to that school. So it's a very conservative, fundamental school at one time anyways. So the School of the Ozarks, a very conservative Christian school in Missouri, they, had, they have been told by the government that if you accept Pell Grants, then they have to abide by our new transgender legislation, which says, if a boy identifies as a girl, the school needs to house him with the girls in the girls' dormitory, maybe even as a roommate of your daughter you have just sent to a conservative Christian school. Because they need equality, and equal recognition to women that work at a very large popular chain were told that they needed to wear BLM pins and LGBT2 insignias on their lapel. They refused. They were instantly fired. The issue is if you don't clap, you're in trouble. Thank you very much. There's nothing new under the sun. 
nothing new under the sun. This same exact thing happened to Daniel. Happens in the scripture over and over and over again. And it's always the same. They trust in a sovereign God. And we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. <clears throat> and I had you turn while I was trying to get everything ready. So I'm not ready. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says this. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give an answer concerning this matter. We all know the story. How many know of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know, I thought I was really important, and I thought I had the in on how to rename these guys. When I was growing up, I called them um, shake a bed, make a bed, and into bed we go. How many remember that? said that many times. I thought that was a cool thing from my pastor. Well, Erwin Lutzer used it in this sermon. I'm like, boy, I guess I was way behind the times. If he's an 81-year-old guy, knows it. But anyways, we know the story. These young men were brought over from Jerusalem into Babylon. And in Babylon, they get down into this, <clears throat> this, uh, this plain, the Bible calls it, and they're to bow down to this thing, right? Bow down. And as they're going along, what happens? Verse 16 and 17. Did Shadrach, Meshach, everybody fell down except for who? Everybody fell down to worship except for who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Probably Daniel too, but he might not have been there at that time. But regardless, they, everybody fell down except for them. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He had his wise servants come up to him and say, hey, these guys aren't bowing. They're not clapping. They're not bowing. What are you going to do? Well, let me ask you, did Nebuchadnezzar know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Oh, yeah, better than we they did. He was the wise guys he took out for his own place. And, and, and it looks like he gets mad at him, but I don't know. I wasn't there. And you, sometimes we read into the story too much. But regardless if he was mad or upset or just disappointed, the reality is he said, guys, I'll tell you what Lutzer says. Guys, I'm sure you must not have got the email. But you're supposed to bow down when the music plays loud. Bow down. So we'll give you another chance to do this. We'll do this again. And this is their reply. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of our hand, O king. He didn't, look what he did, they didn't say, you dork, don't you know I'm a Christian? Didn't say that. He res they respected the king. 
knowing that they're going to obey God and not him, and they're probably going to get thrown, and they will get thrown into the fire. They still were respecting the king. And then he says this, he says, if it be so, what does that mean? They're not presuming that God is going to save them. If God wills, is what they're saying, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of fire. In other words, my God is sovereign, and this ain't nothing. That's what he's saying. In this story, we'll find three convictions. One of them is the sovereignty of God. He is able to deliver us. He is able to do whatever and however He desires. The sovereignty of God is the same as the lordship of God. For God is the sovereign over all creation. That's why it frustrates me so many times when Christians say, well, God, Jesus doesn't need to be Lord to be Savior. That is so false. The only reason He can be Savior is because He is sovereign God. Otherwise, there is no way He could be Savior. Sovereign God is the same as the Lordship of God, for God is the Savior, sovereign over all creation. The major components of God's Lordship are His control, His authority, His presence. He is the Lord over creation as sovereign. He exercises His rule. God is King. He controls everything. The Lord, the term Lord, which is the, which is the uh, translation of the word Yahweh usually, is used over 7,000 times as a name of God and specifically as the name of Jesus Christ. So to, so to discuss the sovereignty of God is to discuss the lordship of God, His control over all things, His authority over... Th and by the way, it's not enough to say control. Because you can have control if He fixes things. Well, I can control that. I can control that. And He's the great fixer. God's not the great fixer. He's the great authoritarian. There is a difference By the way, Lutzer didn't talk about this. I am because it's important. God not only has His authority, God also has His control. Everything happens according to His plan. Amen. As intention. Authority means that all His commands must be obeyed. His presence means that we encounter God's control and authority in our experience so that we cannot escape from His justice or from His love. The Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, and there are many passages, the Bible clearly teaches that God controls all things. He has an eternal plan for all of nature and all of history. Amen? The Bible says in Exodus chapter 6, and this is a fantastic passage, by the way, because this is, this is dealing with that a, 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 a prophecy is there's so much here in Exodus. I'll read it. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Who are the Egyptians? Oh, they're just the world power of that day. 
I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your possessions. I am the Lord. The Sovereign One. I am the Lord. Nothing can stop the Lord from fulfilling His promises. God's control is always efficacious, right? It will always come to fruition. Nothing can prevent Him from accomplishing His purpose. God's control is also universal. It covers nature, history, the natural world, human history, individual human life. Even, God even governs the free decisions of human beings. Amen? Including our attitudes towards others, more problematic for many people. And it's difficult, but there's a sense that even God ordains people's sins. What did He do to Pharaoh's heart? That's exactly what He did. He hardened it. Paul, as sovereign Lord, he also ordains that some will come to faith and salvation. His authority, God's sovereign lordship is more than control. It also embodies his authority. What the, <clears throat> it is because God is sovereign Lord that we must obey him. Because he is Lord, his authority is absolute. We should not waver in our obedience to him. The lordship transcends all of our loyalties his authority over us exists in all areas of our human life, not just in areas where we arbitrarily call it a religious life. He has all authority. God's sovereign presence, when God takes us to be His people, He fights our battles. He blesses us. He loves us. And sometimes, as a loving Father should, He gives us special punishments for our sins. He places His name upon us. We are Christians. In the New Testament, He dwells with us, particularly in Jesus. God with us. Amen? He tabernacles with us in John chapter 1. After He leaves, what does He do? He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in our temple, in us. He is Lord of all creation. His presence is everywhere. Or as theologians would express, omnipresent. If it be so, Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. If it be so, if God wills, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. Let me ask you, do we believe in the power of God? Do we act like it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not clap. They did not bow because they worshipped and therefore were utter, with utter abandon, completely trusted in the sovereign God. How many think the sovereignty of God is important? That's the first one. I should have been over here, right? God is sovereign. God is able is the term we see in the text. By the way, Wednesday night study starting on 14th of September. This is commercial, and this is important. 
Um, Mr. Gaiman and Mr. Zarin are both going to be tag-teaming this. They are teaching on the sovereignty of God. How many think that's a pretty important class? If we can, if we can live as if God is sovereign because He is, what kind of life would we live? Wow. It is well with my soul that we just sang. Tell you what, a lot of Christians, it is not well with their soul because they're watching too much news and not reading enough Bible. Number two, so God is sovereign. We learn that from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One, one place. Verse 18, but even if he does not, let it be known, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So we, here's what they're saying. They're saying we will not surrender. Whether he take, delivers us or doesn't deliver us, it doesn't matter. We will not surrender. We will not bow the knee to anyone apart from God. We will not clap. Look at the term. Now, this is a little bit difficult. Uh, I, I think it's translational issue. But this word, this phrase right here. All right, I don't even know what I'm doing, so I'm going to do this way. <laughs> All right. That word. But even if he does not. Now, in many translations, in my translation, it says this. But even if he does not. But if you would read in that, there's some of those words are italicized in your Bible. That means it's not original. It's added to make us understand what's going on. Because the term in the Greek, it says, but if not. That's it. Three words. But if not. So what is he saying? They're saying, listen, my God's able. Why? He is sovereign. We have to know God is sovereign, especially in days like today, amen? He's absolute sovereign. But not only is He sovereign, we cannot surrender. We cannot bow. We will not surrender because if He does not, if God does not deliver us, I'm telling you, we're not going to serve your gods. We will not bow. We will not surrender. There was, again, an illustration that he used because he was so... If you write a book about Nazi Germany, you're going to have a lot of illustrations about Nazi Germany. I will tell you this. I, I think because he researched so much of Nazi Germany, he sees pieces of it in America today. And it scares them to death. I shouldn't say scares them to death. It's concerning. How many have ever heard of the Battle of Dunkirk? <laughs> this is interesting with this passage of Scripture. In the Battle of Dunkirk, the British commander at Dunkirk 
he writes to the British high command in Britain. He says three words is all he says. Guess what he says in a telegram graph. But if not. Now, let me ask you, what a different culture we live in today. Because in World War II, if they say, but if not, they're like, what, what is he even talking about? What? What? The issue is England was still Christian bound. And everybody knew, knows that that means we will not surrender even if we become overrun. Wow! How many would love to see that as the communication in our soldiers? But instead of teaching them the but if not, they're teaching them he, she, I don't know, pronouns. How many understand what I just said? But if not, we will not surrender. The reason he is saying that we will not surrender, even if it means we die, even if God does not keep us from the fire, back to Shadrach and Meshach, we will not bow, we will not clap, we will not surrender. Let me ask you, this is huge. Listen to this very carefully. Are we okay with the unpredictability of God? Think about that. The text is, we will, God is sovereign. We totally trust Him. Our faith is bound to Him. But if He chooses not to do this, we're okay with that. We will die if we have to. We will not bow. Are we okay with the unpredictability of God? So what are you talking about? Well, let's talk about Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, Herod kills James. And he puts Peter in the brink, or in the jail, to be the next guy. God doesn't save James. God does save Peter. The unpredictability of God. Now does that make sense? He may deliver you, he may not. It doesn't matter. He's sovereign God. Right? Even if he doesn't deliver me, I am not going to surrender. That's what Shadrach is saying. Know what God is up to. How many of you say amen to that? We do not know what God's up to. We simply trust that He knows what He's doing. Do we? How many people during COVID were pulling their hair out in anxiousness? Every one of us, in some aspect, at some level, we're pulling our hair during COVID. Why? We lost sight of the sovereignty of God. And we were scared that we're going to be in trouble. Listen, folks, 
Your Father loves you and cares for you. Your life is all planned for His glory and honor. And He will not even let a hair of your head be destroyed without Him uh, ordaining it, if you will. Not one. He cares for us. We need to be okay with the unpredictability of God. But if not, is the term. No matter what, we will, no matter what, we will not swerve in our allegiance and commit to the living God. We will not bow. We will not clap. The next one isn't found in verses 17 through 18. You'd have to go all the way down to verse 25. In verse 25, Daniel says, he said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Somebody's there. Who's there? We all know the story. Who's in the fire? Who do we believe is in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. You see, when we do not rely on the sovereignty of God, when we, re when we surrender, we do not experience the presence of God. These men totally trusted in the sovereignty of God. They said, even if He doesn't deliver us, we will not disobey. We will not bow. And because these things, guess what? God said, I'm with you, literally. Can you imagine being in the fiery furnace and here's Christ? Erwin Lutzer calls them the asbestos kids. He can do that. He's 81. <laughs> right? But it wasn't because they were the asbestos kids. It's because God delivered them. And not only did He deliver them, He embraced them. He was with them. How many of you say, God, where are you? When we, when we cry, Martin Luther cried that. Martin Luther, after he, I don't know if you understand this, but when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door, some people wanted to kill him at more than one. <laughs> and he has this huge prayer that he prays, Lord, where are you? Help me. I don't know if they're going to take me and put me on the rack. We all know what that is, right? We have moments that we do not, we do not have the peace of God that we should. These men had faith in the sovereignty of God, refused to surrender, and God blessed them with his literal, physical presence. Oh man, that's awesome. That is 
awesome. Their faith was so real that live or die, they would not, they would not disobey God. I will tell you this, if they would have clapped, if they would have bowed, they would have never experienced the presence of God like they did there. They, they would they have lost that blessing. As we know, they were delivered. But there are many who are not delivered. Daniel. Was Daniel himself delivered? Was Daniel himself, did he disobey the law? Absolutely. Don't, don't pray. Well, here's Daniel going to the window, praying again. Why? Because somebody in the government of Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel silenced. So they made up this rule, this law, and Daniel just said, listen, I'm obeying God. I'm going to pray. Did God deliver him? Amen. There was no deliverance, though, for the Christians that were thrown in the, into the animals in the Roman Colosseum. No deliverance there. There was no deliverance when I am sure Jewish people were screaming and eating their own children to be saved from Titus. No deliverance came. It was virtually wiped off. And they were so egregious that the people that escaped, they ran after them, and the Jews that, that did uh, live, if you will, they escaped. They ended up killing themselves instead of putting themselves in the hands of the Romans. By the way, a very interesting aspect to that war of AD 70. In AD 70, well, first of all, the Old Testament says that the Edomites were damned by God and every one of them would die. In AD 70, the last one died fighting for the Jews. Now, isn't that ironic? I will tell you this, though. Despite the Jews that we just talked about, despite the Christians that were in the Roman Colosseum, you don't have to be delivered to be faithful. By the way, I am way ahead of my notes. I apologize. The presence of God. And then lastly, you don't have to be delivered to be faithful. But we're usually faithful because we think we're going to be delivered. Or something good will happen. We need to be faithful no matter what. Amen? Stephen wasn't delivered. On their, on their count. 
and Jesus Christ standing, welcoming Stephen into his arms. Powerful. Here's the application. Persecution is to be expected. Losing your job, vilified, canceled. We must teach people to stand alone on the Word of God. On the Word of God. Different than the Bill of Rights. Do you understand that? We stand on the Word of God. Remember the song, Though none go with me, still I will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. We must teach people to stand alone on the Word of God. Let me ask you this. Another fruit, if you will, of standing for the Lord. How many, how many, how many um, spies went to Canaan? Anybody remember? Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad. Two were good. Right? Two were good. We all know the two. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Name me one of the ten. Huh. Isn't that interesting? You see, we know those that stand up for the truth. But the ones that fail, they just kind of get lost in history. The Bible records their names. Matter of fact, Erwin Lutzer says, if you can tell me one of the ten, I'll give you a hundred bucks. I don't have a hundred bucks. Stephen Davy has a hundred bucks. He'll make it right. Regardless, the point of the, you get the point, right? We don't remember those guys that fail. Uh, Luther said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Oof. Now, I understand. We've got a problem with Luther's papal baptism. I get it. It's wrong. But Luther stood up for the truth. Luther stood up for the truth. This one made me cry because uh, when fighting with a relative of mine, I said, man, I, I, I have no other choice than to preach the Word. Okay then. This was never said, but this was done. I'm not going to help. How many have ever heard of a man named John Huss? Do you know what Huss means? We started the sermon out with an illustration of uh, the Gulag book. And he said, 
while we were standing there clapping, people thought their goose was cooked. The term hus means goose. He preached the gospel in Bethlehem Church in Prague. And the Pope, imagine this, was not happy. Interesting, Huss, or as he constantly reminded people, the goose. That's what he called himself. He used to call, sign his letters, the goose. He was given after he was preached the gospel and they were mad. They, they sent him to be tried for heresy. He was unwilling to go until good King Wenceslas, do you remember that guy? Said, listen, you're going to get safe passage there and the emperor has agreed that he will not, he will not kill you. But you need to go to the trial. So he went to the trial. He was tried for heresy. When he got there, the emperor had this great awakening. This man's a heretic. I don't have to keep my word for him. He grabbed him and he burned him at the stake. This is where we get the term cooked the goose. Before he dies, he says, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years a swan will arise and you will not silence him. 102 years later, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door. Another truth that we need to understand, which I've given you many. We do not need freedom of religion to be faithful. How many understand that? We love freedom of religion. We embrace it. We enjoy it. But we don't need it in order to be faithful. Faithful to His Word. There are a couple more illustrations, biblical ones, that I think are really important. Another fruit out of these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, and Daniel for that matter, for their, for their stand and not clapping, not bowing, for their stand to be obedient to God when government is telling them not to, they still will. A fruit of that is found i got to find the chapter again, I'm sorry. Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go with me there. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. Yeah, i got this thing all highlighted. It's so awesome. But that it, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, do you know what happened, right? Nebuchadnezzar went out and acted like an animal. At the end of that period, he was grazing along the sheep and dogs and cows and all the... You can read it. It's, it's, it's 
right before this in context. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Then he goes on and says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? God is, according to Nebuchadnezzar here now, what? He's sovereign. Luther says it this way. He said, in seven months, Nebuchadnezzar became a Calvinist. Okay. <laughs> the reality is, let me ask you, what kind of an unsaved person says things like this? The new king of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, and I truly believe this, came to know the Lord. Why? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not clap, did not bow. They obeyed God. Whether that meant that they died, it didn't matter. They were going to be faithful to God. And what happened? They were blessed with the presence of Christ on their side. And they were blessed with seeing fruit of how God works. Amen? One last illustration from the text. We would be very amiss if we did not talk about a lady in the Bible. The lady's name is Esther. I hope you have read the story. I hope you know this story. Esther was part of the king's harem. Remember the story? She became part of that harem. King Azarius, something like that, Artaxerxes. He gave Haman, say, listen, you're the you're most powerful man. You need to be worshipped. Everybody should bow down to you. And what happens? He walks through, remember? And what happens? Anybody remember what happens in a big area where all the people are, including this guy? And what do they do? They all bow down except for whom? This little Jew named Mordecai. And I'm not saying that because I don't like him, but I'm sure that's the attitude he had. Who does he think he is? I'm the man. Mordecai did not clap. Did not bow down. Haman got so mad, he got to the king's ear and he said to the king, listen, you got to deal with this guy. This guy, this guy, what is one guy going to do? I mean, really? But they went after him. And not only did they go after him, they said, hey, well, let's just make this an easy, clean sweep. We'll just eradicate the Jews. And we'll make that a law. That we can go and get all their possessions we want, and then we kill them. So... That was the law. So Mordecai goes to Esther. Do you know what he asks Esther to do? Here's the deal. Listen. 
break the law. He does. He tells Mordecai, tells Esther, Esther, go break the law. What do you mean? He tells Esther, you go and you get to the king and you tell him, you got to stop this. Well, the problem was it was illegal for her to go to the king because he had to ask her to come, not she going to the king. It was illegal because if that happened, could be and would be sometime death. That's important, how important the law was. So Esther had a choice. Am I going to obey God or man? What does she do? She goes to the king. Guess what the king does? He listens to her. He listens to her. And we know the rest of the story, right? Haman, the arrogant dude, is hung on his own gallows. All the Jews are saved. Why? Why? They did not clap. They did not bow. They obeyed God rather than men. Listen, we, by the way, I should say this. When Esther was struggling with this, and by the way, it's not easy to break the law to obey God. How many understand that? All these guys were respectful, were honoring, and usually obeyed in everything. But when, these, when it came to this stuff, no, that's a bridge too far, we're done. Here's what Esther said. When, when Mordecai went to Esther, Esther, you need to break the law here. She was like, you're asking me to do something. Here's what she said. Avate, avate. If I perish, I perish. We bow to God. No matter what, we obey God. And we cannot bow to what God says not to. We must obey God rather than men. Amen? It is a powerful, tons of illustrations from Scripture that says it over and over and over again. There are times that we must obey God rather than men. Now, how does that apply to us today? Well, I think it's pretty clear how it applies to us. When Scripture says, do this or do this or do this, we need to obey God. Amen? When government says, no, you can't do this anymore, you're done. We have to obey God rather than men. We don't rely on the Constitution to make us do that. We just simply obey God. It's that easy. Now, is it that easy? Not at all. Because there are so many situations and so many... I mean, you think about it. <laughs> These are the times that are marked in history. When men stood up for truth. Let me ask you, 
why do you know Corey Ten Boom? Why do you even know her name? Who was the German pastor? Uh, what was his name? Bonhoeffer. Why do we know his name? You can go over and over and over and over again, and you're going to see it over and over again. We must obey government. Amen, amen, amen. But when a government tells us not to obey God, we obey God. And we don't do so as some kind of arrogant, look at me guy. That's not what Christ did. It's not what any of them did. We humbly follow the Lord. And at the same time, be at peace with all men. You see, many times it's the attitude that people don't like. I'll, I'll, and I'll give you a perfect illustration and then we're done. Okay? I'm going to give you a name. And that name is going to uh, conjugate, uh, it's going to garner. Yeah, that's, that'll work too. It will garner different emotions in your heart. Donald Trump. Immediately you think of mean, bad, and dirty aspects. How many understand that? And at the same time, you're going to think, well, look what he did for our country. Do you see, are there two unbelievably separate, different realms? Do you know why he's not the president right now? It was his attitude. It was. People hate that. They disgust it. They push it away. By the way, this, Luther didn't say any of this. Right? They hate that. We are to live at peace with all men, not be an arrogant bum in some aspects. Our attitude matters. We don't go on Facebook and threaten to kill people. We simply obey and still at the same time be at peace with all men. Lovingly. Humbly. It does not refer to, by the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abengo did not complain about the speed limit. They obeyed. All we know, from all we know, they obeyed almost every law that Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked ruler, had. But this one was against God and therefore could not be obeyed. Does that make sense? We need to understand that. Esther was the same way. Mordecai was the same way. Daniel was the same way. He was friends with the king. We don't have to be delivered to be faithful. We just, God just wants us to be faithful. If it means our death, it means our death. But humbly, quietly, and on all love, serve God. And if it means we have to disobey, then we have to disobey. Now comes the hard part. Next week, we're going to start 
Romans 13. What does this mean? I've given you two perspectives from two... How many can see the two perspectives are from different, but they're both true? The problem is when they come together, there's a mingled mess in our minds and our hearts, and people are going to go the wrong direction in different ways. It is not our job to yell at each other. It's our job to say, hey, what do you do with this? Because I know your hearts are genuine. How do you deal with this? Or how do you deal with that? We need to lovingly encourage each other to follow Scripture. Amen. And not get mad because this guy has a different view than I do, and that's ridiculous. And how could, ugh. We need to love each other. Amen? All right. Andrew, I did not ask you ahead of time because I had so many things that... But I'm going to ask you to close in prayer, please. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Lord, for this sermon today and this helping us prepare my hearts and minds for when we get into United States and we see what we have to say about obeying government, Lord. We ask that you be with the rest of the chair as we go and we see these young people be obedient to you, Lord, and be baptized. Um, just thank you for them and for that uh, outward show of following you. And we ask that you bless the rest of this day, Lord. And